Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is something I just feel passionately about, almost like a populist in terms of capitalism. The most opportunities are not provided broadly, and so I think generally where we are in in the american economy and global economy is resources are available to the large organizations and top percent and the broad base society doesn't have access to funding and what crowdfunding can do is bring new networks of people to provide capital investment to huge groups of businesses that are otherwise cut out the the traditional local bank credit union relationship management that doesn't exist anymore they've been consolidated. And if you're not, if you're looking for small amounts of funding or you're a non-traditional business, it, it doesn't, it's not really available. All right, Look Up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, just starting off with a huge thank you for listening along, for contributing to the Patreon, for sharing episodes, and of course, for sending me feedback uh, on the newsletter that I've been sending out every week. Love to hear from you all. So thanks for following and always open uh, to inbound requests for guests. Have a great lineup over the next couple of weeks in store for you all. Uh, as we go into the end of the year and the U.S. election in just about two weeks' time. It is October 21st, and I'm coming at you live from Los Angeles. I had the privilege in this episode of sitting down with my dear friend, Daniel Miller. Dan and I go back 15 years. We were both undergraduates at Wharton together. Dan, upon leaving Wharton, became a pioneer in the crowdfunding industry starting what has become the largest real estate crowdfunding platform in the world in Fundrise uh, with over 100,000 unique investors and a billion dollars of assets. Uh, He did this at a time when crowdfunding wasn't even a thing yet. It was the Jobs Act had just uh, been passed and innovative financing solutions for asset classes that are outside of the standard institutional frameworks were just taking off uh, and so Dan is a pioneer in that space, and he started a new company a few years back, which is the focus of this episode, where he took his skill set from building Fundrise and applied it to a major problem uh, in our world, which is the challenge of the industrial agriculture system. He started a company called Steward. The website is www.gosteward.com. S-T-E-W-A-R-D dot com. And Steward essentially provides financing to farmers that are practicing sustainable and regenerative agriculture. And now we discuss why that's important in this episode. Dan defines the regenerative agriculture movement. But essentially, there are hundreds of thousands of small and medium-sized farmers in the United States who practice sustainable agriculture, who can get fresh, locally grown produce to the tens of millions of Americans who live without access to proper nutrition in food deserts, uh, if only these folks had access to uh, better sources of private capital. And so Steward connects small sustainable farms to investors through its crowdfunding platform. 
And Dan and I discuss a lot about the farmers that are on Stewart's platform. We also talk about the regenerative agriculture movement, impact investors, the problem with impact investing, what surprised him most about working with small farmers, and Dan's journey from finance to the agriculture space. Super interesting episode, obviously extremely relevant in terms of fighting climate change and food toxicity and many of the other issues that improving our food system would address. And so without further interruption from me, this is Dan Miller. Dan, thanks for coming on the Look Up podcast. Excited to finally make this happen. Thanks for having me. A lot of anticipation. <laughs> so for listeners, um, you know, we'll, we'll do a little intro, but Dan is the founder and CEO of a company called Steward. And Steward is a financing platform that taps the, the crowd for the regenerative agriculture movement. And Dan's been working on this for uh, almost four years now, uh, really kind of innovating in both the finance space and, of course, kind of supporting uh, local farmers that are doing the right thing. And I had the privilege and opportunity to work with Dan over the last year at Steward, um, supporting the company in a business development role. And we've been saying for the last year that we're going to get him on the podcast. And now it's finally it's finally come to pass. Uh, so I think, you know, as a good starting point, Dan, I just maybe you can define um, for the listeners, like what is regenerative agriculture? So it, regenerative agriculture is a term that has been used more recently. Rodale Institute created the term, uh, you know, 20, more than 20 years ago, but more recently it's picked up. But it's the idea of having agriculture in alignment with ecosystems, focusing on improving soil fertility, maintaining uh, resources, natural resources, and the habitat and humanity and health of, of the land while you're farming it. It's a concept that in indigenous communities is is the baseline. That's how it's always done. But in Western agriculture, it's designed more around extraction, pumping in resources, petroleum-based agriculture, chemicals. And so it's a return to traditional methods of doing agriculture, but obviously not uh, going back in time, but looking forward. And at this point, it's probably best known too as a way to mitigate climate change um, by restoring carbon, but more broadly, you know, improving uh, natural defenses and ecosystems and the land's defenses to take care of itself. Yeah. And following that, like, why is it, why is it so important to be supporting the regenerative agriculture space? And, you know, uh, I guess maybe even just thinking about like what happened recently with, with food supply chains and COVID and other themes that we've touched on, like food toxicity. Um, and you, you briefly mentioned this, but climate change, like why is regenerative agriculture so important? I find that regenerative agriculture connects a lot of the elements that in our culture and economy have been a challenge and can be sources of improvement. You have the actual farming and the production of healthy goods, whether that's food for people to consume, but also medicines and building materials, but sustainable products that are better for people. That is the direct benefit. But while you're using that type of agriculture, you're also improving the soil, you're improving the health of the land and the ecosystems, the ability to drain water, the ability to provide a habitat that is hospitable to humans and others. And then you have a lot of other benefits to that type of work, climate management, ecosystems, uh, reducing pollutants. And I think the, the 
culture is now realizing that the way we farm has impacts throughout our entire society. And so if you want to address, you know, economic opportunity and malnutrition and access to food, you have to change how people are farming and then how they're actually preparing and selling the product. And so you and I were, were, we've known each other for 15 years now almost, which is kind of crazy. And when I say that on calls, I'm like, yeah, I've known Dan for uh, 14 years. And like, Jesus, um, <laughs> time flies. But, uh, you know, we're both Wharton undergraduates, you know, fi- finance, finance guys originally. Like what inspired you to kind of move into, to move into agriculture and to bridge your skill set and background in finance um, to the agriculture space? Yeah, I always felt like I was pulled into finance and I learned it and I knew it, but it wasn't where I was natively. You know, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't what interested me most. And I can, it's important to know how the machine works. So I definitely, mm-hmm. that has been valuable. So to that build. you can and, break it. Yeah. So you can build a different <laughs> system where you can understand that there's not much to it really. And it's made complex, but in reality, it's a simple, you know, situation of providing capital and dollars to people that need it. And the way we have, Finance design right now is pretty much focusing only on the large customers, large corporations and large individuals. So I always saw finance as a way to actually open up access to people. And so through Steward and my past business, Fundrise, it's about bringing more people, more dollars, more engagement among individuals into new asset classes. The agricultural connection comes from family history. I grew up in Washington, D.C., but my mother's family has been farming in the Chesapeake Bay since the 1880s. I even, you know, through Stewart, looked up the actual history, the boat they came across, leaving Bremen, Germany in 1881. So, you know, basically German farmers came to America, have been farming since an eastern shore of Maryland, about 90 minutes from Washington, D.C. And that region was diverse family farms, was one of the most productive watersheds in, in the world, really, but certainly in the beginning of America with the Chesapeake Bay maritime area and then the region surrounding it. But over the past few generations, it's been degraded from overfishing, from pollutants, from poor land management, from pesticides. So it's, it's a natural resource that had sustained the region for, you know, indefinitely in millennia. And within a few generations of poor practices was was degraded. And the region itself was economically depressed, you know, effectively producing commodity, agricultural goods, broiler chickens, you know, Purdue chickens, some of the biggest chicken houses and slaughterhouses and producers of the country are based there. Soy and corn are the are the main products, and they're just sold, you know, to the global market. So I I always saw the way agriculture was done there, and and it didn't make sense to me that in that region you didn't have a lot of fresh food, you didn't have a huge selection at the local markets, you didn't have you know a vibrant economy of farms. You had mainly people producing, you know, for export for someone else. So when I came to Steward, when I looked at agriculture, I was trying to think of how can you do agriculture in alignment with ecosystems to restore and maintain the actual quality of life for the people and communities that live there. And then that led me to Wendell Berry and the Unsettling American, a lot of the the kind of philosophers of agriculture over the past few generations that have looked at the dominant Western way of, of extractive agriculture and felt that it is, you know, it, it does not support itself, will not sustain itself in the long term and has to be changed. We obviously have now taken that framework and pushed it as far as it can go. But I, I think what COVID and other things have highlighted is that, that system and the concept of large scale commodity production with a few central hubs is not resilient. It doesn't have a good output and it doesn't support itself in times of crisis. So certainly the topic of 
What should the food system look like? Should we bring it back down to a local regional level? Should we farm differently? All of those have been things that, that I'm interested in and I found through Steward. But the actual original connection with just being around that region and just being connected to the land there and feeling, feeling like I wanted to put my efforts towards supporting areas like that and other areas around the world and country that have a similar connection to individuals. Yeah, and you mentioned Wendell Berry on Settling of America. I remember when we first reconnected on Steward, you you hand you handed me a copy of that book or or Faisal, shout out to Faisal, handed me a copy I, of that I, book. And I, I need to get I need to get one that back. I need to get the original back. You need that one back? Yeah, if you have. Oh, yeah. I, was that the original I, that I gave you or no? Maybe that was just someone. No, no, it was, some, it was Wait, someone oh, else's. Okay, I, you I, can always keep that, but it's a beautiful book. Yeah, it's an incredible book. And one one element of that that I want to highlight here um, that was surprising to me was like, you know, you and I have had probably like 300 plus calls with venture capitalists at this point um, focused on, you know, who some of whom are impact focused. And I put impact in air quotes and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, some of whom are ag tech focused and others, you know, who are fintech focused and one of the interesting points, I think, about Wendell Berry's book, which I believe was written in the 70s, was, was that, you know, well, the farm of the future, you know, and why doesn't technology just solve all of, all of the problems that we have with, you know, with our food supply? Um, and, you know, that's, that's something that just continues to come up in our conversations, which is like, well, what do you think about vertical farming? What do you think about, you know, this, this new farming practice? And, and it seems like the, uh, the the belief is is to is that technology will will solve the problems that we have with the food system. And I want to kind of obviously, you know, you've been in this now for for a number of years, and like I'd love for you to push back on that assumption. That seems to be the assumption that so many highly intelligent you know people make that are focused on climate and focused on improvements to the food supply. Sure. I, in, in The Unsettling of America, which is Wendell Berry's book in the 70s about, you know, where, where agriculture is going and the kind of modern issues that we have. He talked about the, the role of a salesman of basically selling something for a higher price than it should be that people don't actually need. And I think the reality is people look at agriculture and they try to centralize it. They try to scale it. They try to make it more efficient, but they don't look at the underlying systems that need to be in place. And it, it's not a business that works well with the idea of centralized. But what happened is they took agriculture and effectively made it a manufacturing business. So they removed all the people possible. They mechanized it as much as possible. But the, the output is not the same. You just can't farm in that way and produce products with that type of system and have the same end result. So I, I find so much effort always goes into let's have fewer well, farmers. I, I wanna, can, yeah. can, I, can, I, can I stop you there? Because when I hear you say the output is not the same, you know, I think the question that would come up is like, well, we've been creating, um, you know, there's so much more food production and there's so there are seemingly far fewer people that are starving globally. So, I, but I think, well, I well, want to understand that's a mischaracterization because, you know, the, the current agriculture system talks about calories and feeding the world. That's not their focus. That's not what they're there to do. They're there to produce food products and sell them to customers. And that's their primary business. So if you actually put tools in the hands of individuals and communities that they can produce food and they can support themselves, we have produced a high volume of product over the past hundred years of modern agriculture, but generally it's low quality. People are not the, the least healthy they've ever been. 
the actual nutrient density is low. So we've, we've tried to standardize and systematize a type of, you know, taking care of the world and growing products, which has backfired in some way. So when, when I think generally the thing with agriculture is people want to apply a solution to it. There's not going to be one single solution. There's not going to be one thing that one company does that changes it indefinitely or some advancement which has unlimited energy so no one ever has to harvest and they're automated robots. There's millions of people who want to farm and are already farming. How about giving them more resources and let them do yeah. better and then put it within their hands? And this is a global issue and many other countries where they haven't industrialized as much. You have 20, 30, 40% of the population in agriculture and they have no access to credit, no access to capital. So I just see it as a system that that by, you know, Ms. Ruba Goldberg, by 70, 80 years of just stitching policy on top of another promotes the wrong type of agriculture. And the the type that works isn't the normal American way. It's not one big five conglomerates controlling the whole market. It's millions of smaller to mid-sized integrated systems with local and regional networks. And I think that doesn't present itself on the face of it as as a simple business opportunity. I think you then have to build a distributed network of individuals and farmers to support that. And that's the goal at Steward. But the historical kind of framework around scale a huge company, make lots of money as a centralized organization, that applied to agriculture. I don't I don't believe it's a solution. And we've been chasing the kind of perfect automated agriculture, we don't have to worry about weather, you don't have to worry about labor or anything. And we have the worst food that we've ever had in the, you know, our culture in terms of health and wellness. So that path has not uh, led, you know, it's, it's always just around the corner, but in the reality, there's not led to much progress. Yeah. And I, you mentioned, you know, certain cultures that have not industrialized their, and countries that have not industrialized their ag business have, you know, 20 to 30% of the population um, farming. You know, what is that number in the United States and where has that kind of number come from? Yeah. In the U.S., it was 50 percent in the 1890s and now it is 2 percent. So it's it's gone way too far to the other side. So that's the result of policies to drive, you know, labor, labor towards cities and manufacturing and then also just the consolidation of agriculture with mechanization. But I, I don't think that's going to go back to 50 percent. But I think. For a healthy, vibrant agricultural system, that needs to be, you know, 5%, 10%. And you also need a lot more people connected to farms, buying from farms, providing their resources and, you know, expertise to the farm. So it's not even just the farm, it's a whole system around people being connected to it. Yeah, and that was the, the follow-up I was going to have is like, you know, the, the move to the cities historically and, and the reduction in, in, um, in the number of farmers in the United States, I think many, you know, people who are listening to this or investors or other kind of types in, in the existing financial system would say that's progress. Um, and I guess I want to know, like, why is that incorrect? So, you know, there are natural flows of people and capital. And I, I understand that the result of, of the reduction in labor off of farms and the consolidation of American agriculture was a result of government policy that provided incredibly cheap capital to farms to scale, to buy more land you know, get big or get out. That was actual government policy. They even repeated that in the most recent administration. So their goal was to provide the resources for firms to scale up, consolidate and make, you know, what we have today, which is, you know, 10% of landowners and farmers controlling, you know, 60% plus of, of the actual product. So the, it's, it's not, this isn't just a free market competition thing. If you actually wanted a free market competition thing, the regenerative farmers that are not buying purchased inputs that are using the soil and land that are 
have low overhead and sell direct to local residents, they can compete at any cycle. Those are the farms that thrived in COVID. When the system breaks down, they continue. So if you actually wanted to see what the result would have been if there had been a, a policy towards promoting manufacturing and, and consolidation of agriculture, it would be much different than it is now. So it's, it, they, they kind of pretend like this is just the market speaking, but it's not the market. It's a market flooded with government incentives and government policy. And that has been a hugely negative result. I, I think overall, you know, over the past hundred years, it's focused on driving growth and profits for a handful of organizations as opposed to the broader well-being. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, you know, a heavy focus on calories versus quality of, of nutrition. And so now we're in this place where I, I think it's 23 million Americans uh, are food insecure. And food insecure is like this word that is, is used, but it's really, it's really like a, it, it's not strong enough. It basically means that they don't have access to, to nutrition. You know, they're, these, are, these are food deserts, as they're known in the United States. Do you want to speak a little bit to that? to that issue and, and how, you know, uh, supporting small regenerative farmers might, might shift the scales there. Yeah. I really see food deserts as a cultural and educational breakdown inherently in food deserts. It means it's an economically depressed area. It means land prices are relatively low, which is actually the simplest place to farm because land prices are very high. You have a community there that can access food. And if people had, you know, passed down their history and be able to grow and share, food that they would actually be able to sustain themselves instead of relying on, you know, a grocer or a local market to come in. But the culture of agriculture passed through generations has been destroyed most places. And so in, in cities, in a lot of, you know, food deserts spread all around the country too, because it's not just urban areas. It's also rural areas that grow commodity crops. They've forgotten how to grow product for people that can sustain people. Um, one of the first farms we that raised capital on Stewart is called Fisheye Farms. They're in Detroit. Uh, they are in the center of a food desert, growing fresh local food and three acres of land with, you know, wash and pack station, farm stand. They sell food all to local residents at prices that are reasonable to them that residents can afford. And then for those that can't, they do a reduced price or they give them food and they they just manage it at a local level. And they don't do that because there's some program or incentive, but because of these people are actually people they're connected with and they, they grow food to be healthy and to provide that to other people. So I, I think the solution in agriculture, health, well-being and climate as well is many small solutions, you know, integrated among skills, experience networks, but not, you know, there's not one major solution. And I look at food deserts. We have tons of urban farms who want to scale up their business. They all have trouble acquiring land particularly from a lot of cities in Detroit, they have 10,000 acres of vacant land that could be sold to farmers or used in some ability for agriculture. We were the first to finance the purchase of one of these farms for, for the farm we supported. And that was two acres and that took a long time. And so a lot of it is just the, the lack of resources and investment and support and, you know, modest amounts of resources for those communities to support themselves through these programs. And that's when I think of, where agriculture is in the United States, it's let's provide the product to people versus let's teach people how to do it themselves. Because teaching people how to do it themselves is normally not as good a business as selling a product. And I, I think that's where the culture of profit making versus the cultural importance of agriculture gets stretched in the United States. And you have trouble, well, what is the main priority? And historically, for a lot of these communities, they don't have access. They're 
forgotten and they don't have access to the resources to build their own infrastructure to do it themselves. And as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's kind of ironic in some ways, or it's, it's a weird joke because in the region that, that, you know, your family had their family farm since the 1880s, as an example, you describe that every acre is planted and yet access to fresh local produce is limited there. Um, and that's, that's, you know, kind of absurd when you think about it. It is in a place where every single square foot in rural areas that are food deserts, every square foot's planted, but it's all being exported out and it's not necessarily edible, consumable products. A lot of it's even going to feed of other livestock or bio, you know, biofuels. So I, I think that just shows what it, what's the priority. Every time I see, you know, articles and talk about like, it's, I think it's now over a majority of farmers in the U.S. don't eat food from their own farm. Like, that just is a crazy concept. You would think the first person eating your own food is actually yourself. It's, and it then, might even be mandated that the farm must eat food from its own well, farm. What's the point otherwise? You're going for yourself. It's literal dog fooding. Yeah, and we, we, we had a farmer that grew up on a large dairy operation in Wisconsin, the classic kind of milking 24-7 with huge equipment infrastructure. And then he moved to the West Coast and opened a farm, had 20 or 30 cows you know, had made cheese by hand. And then his parent father had come to the farm to just check things out. And he drank their milk and said it was delicious. He's like, I don't actually even drink the milk of my farm. And it's just a crazy idea that that's his business. That's what he does every single day. And he doesn't even try his own product, which I think goes to show is, is the business of agriculture America focused on quality or quantity? And if it was quality, then he would be, he and every other farmer would be having very healthy meals all the time. Absolutely. And I guess, um, you know, I, I want to go down a couple of routes and I know we only have like 20 more minutes here, but one of the routes that I want to go down is like, why the crowd? Um, because I think that's a question that we get a lot at, at, at Steward. And, you know, I know your background is in, is in crowd financing and maybe you can speak a little bit to, you know, your work at Fundrise and how that led you here. But why is community-based or crowd-based financing so important to the development of the agriculture industry in United States and globally. This is something I just feel passionately about. I'm just like a populist in terms of capitalism. The most opportunities are not provided broadly. And so I think generally where we are in, in the American economy and global economy is resources are available to the large organizations and top percent and the broad base society doesn't have access to funding. And what crowdfunding can do is bring new networks of people to provide capital investment to huge groups of businesses that are otherwise cut out. The, the traditional local bank, credit union, relationship management, that doesn't exist anymore. They've been consolidated. And if you're not, if you're looking for small amounts of funding or you're a non-traditional business, it, it doesn't, it's not really available. So crowdfunding began through donations and Kickstarter and quickly became apparent that large sums could be raised through this. And I think when people think of crowdfunding, they think of a, a project that kind of goes online and they come across it and they have no connection. Really what it is is about amplifying existing networks, providing an efficient tool to distribute through those networks and relationships that can be shared and transacted with easily. And that's what we find for our farms. They're promoting it to their customers. They're promoting it to their family members. They're talking in local press. They're getting it in front of people who already have familiarity and a connection. There's also those who just love regenerative agriculture and want to invest because they want to. But giving that business the ability to amplify their network and, and raise funding from those who are aligned with them. Now it's an entirely different type of funding. 
return is obviously a relevant factor, but they're also going to invest based on the desire to support the business and see them be successful. And then that leads to terms that are favorable for these farmers that are aligned with what their growth can actually be. And that's what we're seeing with a lot of these investments. We support the farms and help them raise capital at rates that are reasonable, but they're finding people are investing because they want them to be successful. And in the traditional finance world, that doesn't matter at all. You know, you go to a private equity firm or traditional investor, there's other than a conversation, there's no real consideration on the other benefits that happen. Whereas for an individual supporting a farm they know and they trust and they love, there's tangible other aspects of it that mean something to them, which comes back to values, which comes back to the whole concept of how do you align values in an economic system. And there has to be, clearly be some new thinking in regards to that. And I think crowdfunding is one way to have a conversation more around appropriate use of funds directed in the places that need it and more aligned with the values of the, the investor and the person using the capital. Yeah, what I find fascinating about that that particular model um, is it really is one of the best ways to bootstrap stakeholder economics. Where if you're shareholders in in the farm, and I know we, you know, Stuart is mostly debt, so it, it, let's call it like debt investors in in the farm have a financial incentive for the farm to do well, but they're also the customers of the farm. Then there's much more alignment. Whereas as we see with shareholder capitalism, you know, airlines I think is the perfect example where They've done a bunch of things to maximize shareholder profits, but over the last, you know, call it half a century, um, the experience of flying has gotten worse and worse and worse. And the, the customer value has just declined dramatically. And it just becomes a game of like, what's the lowest price that I can get? Even with these loyalty programs, it seems like there's not a lot of, uh, not a lot of interest in really serving, serving the customers, um, and so in this instance, you know, the investors, be, the customers become the investors. And I think I'd love to, for you to, to kind of share at least one, one example of that through the stored platform. Um, East, yeah. East four comes to mind, but you probably have a bunch. Yeah, the, it, it goes back to like the fundamental principles of an economy and economics. If you have people who are using their capital to support a farm who's growing food and selling primarily to that community and those customers, now it inherently is a successful business because that's their revenue and that's their capital. And it takes it out of the kind of broader effect of so many other variables throughout our all global system that to simplifies of as long as there's sun, as long as there's soil, they can grow the food and provide it to individuals. And I think that that's what people are interested in now, creating systems and loops that are outside of the kind of centralized control that they feel that they have that direct relationship some, with someone and they it's not, you know, at risk of being undermined or affected by anyone else. And and that's what most of the farms that we work with are. They've established a brand. They've established identity. They have customers and people that support them that want to see them succeed. And they buy products from them. They invest in the farm. They visit the farm. They, they just want to be involved with that business. It goes to people's desire to connect. Um, East Fork Cultivars, who you mentioned, is one of the farms that we've been, you know, that's been on our platform for years and has successfully raised capital many times. They're at Sungrown Craft Hemp Business in Southern Oregon. They're just pioneers in that industry and definitely, you know, leaders in terms of values and ethics in cannabis and hemp, which has always been a challenge. And so they've raised funding over the past, you know, four years since they've been active, since founding from friends and family, 
you know, $10,000 investments, 20K investments, just cobbling it all together, just doing whatever it took to take the next step. And now that you're using Steward to accelerate that. So now they're on our platform, on our network, tapping into our network. They're also able to promote their offering through social media to individuals. They had someone on Twitter who'd always followed them three minutes after they sent out the first offering, invested $10,000. How otherwise would they have approached that person? How would they have led knowing that that's the person who really wants to take that next step and support their growth. And so you have these existing relationships they have with customers, with people online that follow them that that now can step forward and take the next step to support their business and tangibly see the impact there. So I, I just consider it a, it's just a different way of thinking about, you know, investment and economics. And it's built around the decentralized framework that if you have those investors supporting that farm, they really are their own economic loop, they can support themselves and sustain themselves. And I think there needs to be more thinking in that of how do I build the capacity myself versus finding it somewhere else or waiting on another resource to come. And that's what I find most exciting about our work that, you know, modest amounts of capital and what are considered the American financial system, 25,000, 100,000 have fundamental impacts on those farms, those communities, the people around them. And if more of that was done, I, th- I think you'd see a lot of positive aspects throughout all of those things I discussed in the beginning that, that centralize around agriculture, but ultimately are integrated to society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, I think, you know, Stuart is solving a two-sided problem, right? One is, one is, as you've mentioned before, the legacy financial system boxes certain farmers out of access to capital, um, private capital, even in many instances, government capital and subsidies and grants. Uh, because of the way that they're farming versus, you know, or, or even just the process that's required to go and submit to the government for financing, which is extremely um, difficult for many of these farmers who are managing a business, taking care of the land, et cetera. And on the flip side, you know, I, I think the crowdfunding opportunity um, and this ownership opportunity, economy opportunity is, um, as Jesse Walden at Variant um, Capital describes it, is that the the retail investor, the average individual, does not have access to high quality investment opportunities um, outside of you know the stock market or you know bonds, um, and and that's what you did with with Fundrise, giving access to real estate. But here now, there's access to you know to invest in the agriculture space, which has performed very well, uh, and the regenerative agriculture space, which is a growth sector in that economy. And so you're you're connecting these two areas that are in need. For me, one of the most surprising elements of working working at Steward, well, there were two things that surprised me most. Um, one was the number and quality of farms that had already applied to the platform for financing. You know, just how big this market is today. And, you know, VCs are always talking about, like, what's the TAM? Well, the TAM is hundreds of thousands of farmers in the United States who need access to capital and don't have it. And the second piece was, you know, coming from this finance background, and you and I have gone back and forth on this, like, you know, the, the expected rate of return for investors. And when we speak to certain investors um, who want, you know, yeah, like we can't do it, you know, like traditional credit funds, who's like, we can't do it for like sub double digit returns. And we know what impact, negative impact that has on the farms. And then on the flip side, we speak to, this is the surprising part for me. We speak to investors who are like 5% is way too high. I would never do that to the farmer. And it's just this dichotomy of, you know, like traditional capital, traditional finance. And then these consumer, these these customers who want the farm to succeed and believe that the reasonable rate of return is actually lower. That's what's been most surprising for me. 
And that's, that's like the fundamental concept of a capital market. You have people at different prices who want to do a deal and you aggregate it together. That's what a capital market should actually be. It doesn't it really exist in theory and only companies, you know, huge public companies kind of have that buy and sell, but that affects the farmer. If they need to raise a smaller amount or they have a huge network of people that really support them, they can raise funding at a lower rate. If they're stretching and they need to go beyond their network and they need the money really badly, then they have to pay a higher rate. And they can adjust that based on what they need. And that power is never in the hands of, of the farmer or the customer, the ability to really define what they need when and how to get it. And I think that's part of, you know, that's part of finding people who are aligned with the farms that they can, they can monetize that in a sense that the strength of their narrative and their character is shown by them being able to get credit at a lower rate, which is really what you know, relationship making theoretically, they always talk about, but that's really what it is, is that you have, you believe in the viability of that farm and that business to do, to be successful. So I, I'm always surprised by it. And I always try to recommend or at least suggest these are the ranges that make sense. But ultimately, if a farm has a following that wants to support them and wants to do it at, at the terms that they're comfortable to do it, that it's our, that's our, that's what we're here to support. Um, but certainly for someone from Wharton, you know, when you see a deal that some hedge fund would quote at 18 percent, you know, and individuals doing it at six, that's just, you know, two people with it's, two different perspectives in the world. It's, it's, the, word, the word is befuddling because like the, the professionals, you know, are so just, you know, rigid and, and stuck. And even those that are focused on impact, and I do want to get to that subject, um, I have to, before we move into kind of the idea of impact investing, and we can speak to some of our own experience there, uh, I, I want to ask you, what has been, what has been the most surprising element, um, of working on Steward coming from, coming from Fundrise or just in general, what, what has surprised you the most? I had to learn about the farmer. You know, I, I didn't grow up on a farm. I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., I have agriculture connection through one side of the family, but that was, you know, visiting and seeing that wasn't living and breathing. So as I started working on Stewart and was inspired by Wendell Berry and then set out, you know, who are these farmers actually doing the type of agriculture he's talking about, you know, that the the mythical farmer. This is great because this was actually going to be my next question. Who are these farmers? This is perfect. Yeah. So you, so I had to understand that, you know, I, 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 and I started to meet these farmers originally through a well-known chef in the DC area who was a pioneer in local sourcing. And then I started to meet some of the farmers he was buying from, all of whom who had trouble getting financing, even though they're selling to a James Beard award-winning chef, which shows the kind of the gap between the consumer demand and the access to capital. And so I started to, to meet these farms and, and ask for referrals from people. People I knew in the Portland area connected me with an organization who was supporting young farmers. And I went to Oregon and met a bunch there. And I found that a lot of them did went to college, had no farm background, did not grow up on a farm, are just people who have been very inspired to work in agriculture, whether they learned it at, you know, uh, in university at an urban agriculture course or did woofing, which is an internship for agriculture around the world. And they see this type of farming as a means to do much more than make money. In reality, it's it's a difficult business in any circumstance. So they're always in it for something else. They're in it for to help their local community. They're in it because they think people should have fresh, nutritious food. They're in it for climate change. And so you, you you kind of have this perspective of the farmer, you know, probably white, older Midwestern farmer growing some commodities, you know, in the Midwest of the Iowa corn. But 
the reality is there's a diverse network of, of so many different people from so many backgrounds that are in this that are doing such amazing work and they just need a little bit of more support so that kind of the passion, the obsession, the, the personality of all of these farmers just blew me away. They're, they're really artists almost in how they mm. work and how they think about it. And so they, it was just so vibrant. And then presenting that story to people to support it's, it's really not that challenging because there's so much about these people. And so of the first eight farms that raised funding on steward seven, did not come from farm backgrounds, which, you know, in the history of farming, it pretty much is a generational thing passed down. You don't have huge people going from urban professions into agriculture. I doubt really and in the history ever. And that's that. changing. That That's changing from the data like we, we've seen. Um, that's the cultural the shift. Small farmers. Yeah, the first increase in the number of small farms in the past hundred years, since 1935, since they mechanized agriculture. And that's coming to the cultural shift of people realizing the importance of food and agriculture is a way to take care of land, which then comes back to people wondering about the size of the market. And the reality is it's just an underrepresented market. It's just people from all walks of life entering it and wanting to support it. So I, I, I find most rewarding about Stewart is definitely the work with the farmers, but I, I just love visiting the farms, supporting the farms, trying to farm products. And, and you kind of fall in love with it, which is how I and everyone else at the company, you just fall in love with this type of you know, just doing things this way. There's a lot of um, passion and it's also something that, that you can see tangibly how it's improving. Yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible that there's such a diverse group that Stuart has financed. I think over 50% of Stuart's farms come from non-traditional backgrounds. There's a number of non-white and POC farmers, LGBTQ farmers. And, and what's interesting is it wasn't the intention of Stuart to and you to go out and say, we're going to set targets for the number of non-white farmers that we finance. Um, and it happened emergently because the folks that happen to be left out of the financial system are those who come from non-traditional backgrounds. And, and that's what I love so much about Stuart is you're not, you haven't built a business that is, that is designed to capitalize on the impact narrative. You've built a business that is focused on solving a major problem that happens to have a ton of impact as a result of solving this problem, which is access to capital for farmers that are practicing regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture, and don't and, and don't have that access. They're not part of the top five percent of farmers um, economically. And that's always how I feel about it when I was describing earlier, like people's values in investment. It, the whole thing is aligned. It's not making money here to then give back here. It's like the, the process of making the money actually leads to positive outcomes. And that's where I think the world needs to go with investment aligned. That not like these are the bucket of impact investments where you won't make any money and there's terrible terms. And then these are the Wall Street investments that are 100% return oriented. And that's where it is. And so as we've built this network of farms, you know, we're generally supporting people who are already farming. So they've gotten it together. They're at least a few years in, a few years in their experience, but now they want to take that next step. They have products people want, they have their markets established and they hit this gap. And how can they ever buy the land they need, equipment, infrastructure to do it? But if you unlock that money, they can hugely grow. So I, it's, it's effectively an alternative finance platform with alternative users of the platform because those are the people, like you said, that are cut out of the system, but those are also the cultures and communities and a lot of the individuals that are most motivated and that look to do things differently because of their status. And and on that front, like, you know, we have examples of farmers that we've financed in the past that have grown their revenue 10x, right? And like, 
that's what's another element that's surprising to me is it really is just a little bit of capital necessary for these farms to start to grow, you know, to feed, to breathe, right? Like if you're a farmer that has to work two jobs as one of our farmers did washing dishes, you know, and then you get, you get capital infusion, you get more land, you're able to, to breathe a little bit. And then with that, with that space, you can grow into it. And so I, I, that's been super interesting um, from my stance as well. Um, I'm sure you have thoughts on that, but I did want to, I did want to kind of jump over to this like impact uh, narrative um, a little bit before we, before we jump off. Um, you know, how do you measure the impact of financing a two acre purchase for an urban farmer in Detroit? And, you know, it's, in, it's almost immeasurable. It's like everybody's so focused, impact investors are so focused on quantifying the impact you know, whether it be for their LPs and it, data is important and tracking is important, but how do you value a fresh farm food stand in the middle of the food desert that, you know, didn't exist two years before? That's what I find most frustrating about the idea of impact because it classifies it separately and then they want metrics. And the reality is the most impactful projects don't have the capital and resources and overhead to be measuring all of these things. They're just doing, they're acting, they're out in the ground. The farmer doesn't have time to take a soil <laughs> sample every week and do this and do that and measure the exact water change and difference. So there's certainly a role for technologies that help measurement. But the first thing should be, how can I just make it easier to get the resources in the hands of those people on the front lines? And I find that so much of the kind of general U.S. policy and broader policy of for small amounts, let's just make it really painful and frustrating and let's get lots of paperwork and let's make it really hard to access and let's make the overhead so much that the cost of the resources is 80% of it's gone by the time it gets to the person because of just middleman overhead layers. Whereas when you just want to give, you know, finance a hundred billion of assets through the Fed, it's just done. It's over. No problem. No questions. I was looking at hundred round billion. numbers. That's, that's, that's you know, nothing. That was just that's, Tuesday morning, like right? Yeah. yeah, that was Tuesday morning. So... I, and it, so when I look at these farms, I'm like, yes, you you should be able to over time measure more and more. But just understand that getting 100,000 in the hands of that farm in Detroit now means he's got three acres of land, which means a formerly abandoned land is now cleaned up, which means the community feels safer. And now people are willing to invest more in the, the broader region. And he now is a farm stand that people can buy fresh food. I don't know how you quantify that. And I think that's the problem with our culture. They want to quantify everything like that's spiritual. That's fundamental change in people's lives. You know, they even got married on the farm. Their life is changed by the opportunity to grow with this capital. And the people who live around them are changed by the ability to access this product. So I, 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 I'm all about data if it's, you know, if it's important, but I, I think so much of impact is managing other people's money and kind of trying to get thresholds and metrics. And it just becomes the same bureaucracy you're seeing otherwise. And that's why the individual, you know, direct connection of person investing in the farm, nobody between just is fundamental shift because they're, they're only reporting to themselves. If they feel like, okay, I can see the impact. I hear the story. I believe it. Let's do it. And they're not reporting to someone else. So the intermediation is really one of the big problems. That's also the same problem on the farmer selling to the consumer side, five intermediaries doing processing and packaging and distribution. When you get the direct sale from the individual to the farmer, it's a different product, different experience, a different relationship. So when you tie those pieces together, the kind of measurability of it, the need to report the data, you know, overloading data, which I think is 
for the whole nonprofit world, a huge problem as well. It just becomes moot because you have those individuals support it. And then somewhat connecting to that, we're now launched the Steward Foundation, which will allow farmers to raise charitable contributions to apply towards work that they do that's not necessarily economic oriented, whether that's farmer training or conservation easements. And this is another area where getting grants down to these farms, even organizations who say they want to give grants, it's so cumbersome. There's so much paperwork. There's so much time to do it that it's just not realistic. So I find the biggest challenge with these farms, yes, they're non-traditional businesses, but it's just the administration and paperwork required of the normal financial system and normal grant programs. It is completely misaligned with who they are, which is pioneering people focusing on getting things done. And so what we're trying to do is build a system and tools that they can use quickly, simply, easily, and just get kind of get around the cumbersome nature of the existing system. And the fact that that system is, you know, it's not built for them. It's not looking for them as a customer. Maybe they inherit, do a few here and there, but the, the target of their business is not these farms. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that to me is what's another element of Steward that's so exciting is like, Steward is truly positioning itself as a partner to these farmers, right? And the opportunity set that comes from that when you really are eating and breathing and sleeping this this partnership, and it's all about the farmer, is is massive. The network effects of farms coming onto the platform. And really, like something as simple as the knowledge that Steward has through its relationships with existing farms and you know, Steward's VP of Agriculture, Aaron Newton, who maybe I should have on a separate episode of this show, you know, coming in and saying, well, what, if you put some value-added production on site, you know, now, as with one of the dairy farmers that we financed, and, and you've spoken about this a bunch on calls I've been on, you know, take take your dairy farm, get some value-added production, start making yogurt, start making butter. Now you're selling that directly to the end consumer. You, as the farmer, are capturing, six, you know, that 60% reduction in your operating margins that the distributors are taking. And it's just a much better business model for the individual farmer. So Steward can help support on things like that. I wanted to say, um, you know, to the, to your point about kind of the the farmers getting married on site, and I know you have to run soon. Uh, we're we're gonna we can't talk about fatherhood on this episode because you actually have to be a father, uh, little Winston, the man. Um, but you know, to to the point, it's like I just feel like we spend so much time, um, you know, we forget intuitively, like what just what makes sense, right? Like. Where, where are you? We've spoken about this folks, folks, wealthy folks on the coast, where are they spending their dollars? And then, you know, they're spending it on farm fresh, locally sourced, you know, sustainable produce. Um, that's the type of food that they want to give their kids. It's like the same thing as like the, the old fable of Steve Jobs wouldn't give his son an iPad or, or whatever, or his daughter an iPad. Um, and yet then it's like, okay, well, uh, how do you quantify this? And it's like, why do you need to quantify this? It makes so much intuitive sense. It's where you're spending your dollars. It's clear that this is having a positive impact. And uh, I just feel like, I feel like we throw the baby out with the bathwater by trying, by trying to have these like very strict metric oriented. And, and I'm looking for an analogy here. I think the iPad one is probably a decent one. It's like, you know that, you know that it, it, it makes sense, but let's put our dollars where our mouths are impact investors. Well, I think there's, you know, it's about alignment. And so I think a lot of it is, you know, money earned a certain way that then wants to be reinvested. I, I personally find a lot of um, the people that seem to be doing the most impact investing, they just don't classify it as impact investing. They just, this is who they are. And this is the type of things they like to support. 
So I, I think it, it's just about that direct relationship where you can make that judgment call that this makes sense. I believe it. And I want to support this project for that reason. But I, I think the challenge of just being an impact investor is, well, how are you quantifying and how are you measuring that? What's the difference between that and a normal investment? And so when you're trying to justify the differences, then you start to get into metrics and numbers. A huge one that everyone's talking about now is, you know, carbon farming and regenerative agriculture reduced carbon. And how much is it measuring? And is it this? Is it that? And they just miss the broader issue, which is it's a net positive. It's a huge yeah, net exactly. positive. Yeah, exactly. You know that by financing farms that are doing it right, that it's a net positive on so many levels, right? Equity to an access to capital, um, you know, biodiversity, community development, solving food insecurity, and then carbon as well as like another another potential benefit. And it's just um, I forget, and I'm going to post a link to it, but there's this this um, law or rule when you start to make the the the, the target. Like whatever you're targeting becomes the uh, whatever metric you're targeting becomes. I'm going to look it up and I'll I'll mention it in the few, in the intro notes um, to the show. But it's uh, it's very frustrating. And the other thing that's frustrating to me that I was speaking to another friend about is like it feels like imp when impact investing became a thing in the '90s, it was like everyone that was leaving their traditional finance jobs to go focus on ESG and impact. We're like, we're going to make this work, blah, blah, blah. And their colleagues were all laughing at them, like, good luck having an impact and getting the same returns. And then it was like, it became this like goal of impact investing that we can do impact with the same returns as other investments. And it's like, yes, but, you know, if you're sole, if you, if you're focused on impact, then one of the things you're going to be solving is the reduction of negative externalities. And by its very nature, you're going to receive lower returns by providing additional returns to the commons where these externalities are getting are, are essentially being placed. The burden of them is being socialized. So it, it just mathematically, it, it doesn't make sense that you would have the same returns if you're truly making an impact. You can have phenomenal returns. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> I know I, I going off agree right with on. the general sentiment. And something I find that that frustrates me in ESG is you're still shuffling around corporates. You know, they talk about ESG investing and they're ranking public agricultural companies. I mean, you're choosing among, <laughs> you're choosing among organizations that do not have a good track record, you know, with, with the large public corporations in agriculture, those investments are not going to drive. So the best of them is still nowhere near what the impact would be on the ground with a local small, small farmer, but they, somebody pension fund needs to put, you know, hundred million towards ESG. So just the fact that most ESG investing is public securities means it's not getting to those places of high impact, which means it's not powerful, which is because it's stuck within this big system. So there's so much talk of impact dollars in ESG, but the people on the ground that I'm meeting, the entrepreneurs and civic leaders driving real change, they don't, they still struggle to find the capital. So it's not it, the, the system that we've built, the kind of normal financial system and then just applying that, but saying it's impact doesn't, it doesn't do what it needs to do. It's nice greenwashing and people get to call themselves impact investors and feel good about it um, is, is kind of how I feel. Just like I, this is not this is not Dan's opinion on the matter, of course. Um, but but I actually found what I was referring to earlier. I, I did a Google. Thank you, Google machine. It's called Good Arts Law. And Good Arts Law states that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And that seems to be where we are with with um, impact investing. You know, we're so hyper-focused on the measure 
And, you know, in this instance, I think carbon sequestration is one of them that we're forgetting that intuitively we understand that something like this project is having a positive impact on society. And that's the most important part, whether you can prove that to your LPs or to your foundation donors or whatnot is, is ultimately secondary. They would understand and appreciate that something like this makes sense. So, and, and that's why I think it's important to broaden the investor base and pu- publicize to as many people as possible and find those who are really aligned and are willing to take the step and take the risk and do it on instinct with data, but not spend two years trying to find the right data to make the decision. And those are the people that we're fine supporting these farms. They believe in this type of agriculture. They want it to be successful. They, they, they hear the farmer's stories and know what the capital could do. And they take the leap. And then in 15 years, there'll probably be large public companies, you know, mutual funds that do this type of investment. And then we'll be on to something else. But you, you have to, you, the, the kind of front end of leading impact investment is being done by non, by the not, not by corporate organizations, not by large organizations. It's being done very grassroots, which is my goal of how do you build the financial framework that is grassroots and distributed to, to lift that up versus just taking it from the top and bringing it down. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, you know, and for the listeners, you could, you could go check out gosteward.com, G-O-S-T-E-W-A-R-D.com. And what I find, you know, Dan has done and, and the team, the incredible team at Steward who are, who are, you know, predominantly motivated by getting capital into the hands of these farmers um, is the stories, right? Like you can see the individual stories of these farmers on the platform. And I find that that in and of itself is, it, it really hits home. And, and one thing that I've learned through working with Dan team over the last year is that, um, is that while the farmers are all unique individuals and have their own unique stories, a lot of the problems that they face are the same. And they are surprised and encouraged when they connect with other farmers who share share their pain and realize, oh, this is a much larger issue than just my local, you know, situation. Um, Dan, before you jump, I wanted to ask if there's anything else that you want to share with the listeners. I just wanted to say I enjoyed being on the show. We always have these conversations offline and, and I think they're important topics and it's always around the foundations of, you know, how do you design an economy and a framework that can be fair to more people and include more people. And you hear that type of lingo all the time and you hear that type of talk all the time, but the reality is it, it can be done. And I think it's best done by individuals driving change themselves and bringing people along that want to help them do it. Absolutely. And that's what you're doing. So thanks. Thank you for so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Enjoy your walk with Winston. Um, I'll, I'll catch you later. And for the listeners, we'll have more information on Stuart and some of the other subjects that we spoke about in the show notes. All right. Hello, LookUp listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of LookUp every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, 
www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have.